Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up. Today I am speaking with Jason Diamond, a columnist at GQ and author most recently of The Sprawl, Reconsidering the Weird American Suburbs. Uh, as you'll hear him say in our interview, Jason loves talking to people and is such a wonderful conversationalist and our chat covered everything from cardigans and sweater conundrums, which I can relate to, to our lonely childhoods in the suburbs. This episode was recorded before the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, so it adds a particular pathos to the conversation that we have about Jason's love of Russian literature and his own family lineage from Poland and Russia. We also talk about how to make the perfect martini, even if, like me, you like to put vodka in it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Somebody was like, why do you like to write about clothes so much? I'm like, well, clothes, you, you always need them. And especially now, it's like you think to yourself, people are like, oh, I just want to wear uh, sweatpants and this and that. I'm like, but you're still going to want to wear a sweater. Like a sweater is always, it always works. And certain things you just always want to throw on and it, it feels comforting. It does. But I have a question for you. Do you think more sweaters are worn in the suburbs than in the city? Ah, that's a tough one. I don't know. I want to find that out now. Now I'm very curious to find that out. I mean, when I go to my in-laws house in central Connecticut, they have a J crew there and the sweaters are always very prominently displayed. I don't know. I think we maybe in the cities, we have more to choose from. Like I could buy a sweater from a place in Japan that I'm obsessed with, or I can go to a vintage store and buy a sweater. There are so many options. And that's, I guess, the beauty of the city. It is. Well, I want to mention your new book, which is why we've been delving into what people might or might not wear in the suburbs. And it's called The Sprawl, Reconsidering the Weird American Suburbs. So I want to go backwards a bit because we both grew up in suburbs and I think so many listeners will have grown up in suburbs. And there's a certain point in life and sometimes you dabble with like do we go back to the suburbs or not? Have Has that ever come up for you? Or are you a city man through and through? I don't think so. I don't think I could go back to the suburbs. I, I have nothing against the suburbs, but I've lived in New York and Chicago my entire life pretty much. And being able to walk outside and just see people, being able to walk to my coffee shop, being able to just all the millions of little things that we take for granted living in the city... Once those are kind of taken away from me, I start to go a little stir crazy. So I don't, I don't think I could. I wanted to know too what the kind of link between your first book and memoir, exploring John Hughes's work, and also kind of an interrogation of the suburb in a way, and how that, 
how looking into your childhood and how you grew up led to this next thoughtful look at the American suburb and the history that informs how Americans live. How did one build towards the other? As I was writing the first book, I would just think about like, why was it like this when I was growing up? Why was this a thing? Why was that a thing? Why did I see this? Why were things presented to me in a certain way where I was growing up? And there's something, there's so many strange and wonderful things about the suburbs that I think have just kind of gone undocumented or under discussed and they were just lingering around in my brain. And, you know, I, I love John Hughes movies and in, in my memoir, I'm very quick to be like, you know, there's a lot wrong with those movies. There's a lot I don't agree with. There's a lot of like rapey jokes and there's racist jokes. And, but there is a lot of interesting sort of like looks at things like class in John Hughes movies, which I found really fascinating. And I wrote about that in the memoir and I started thinking about it more and how it goes beyond just these movies. Like class is everywhere. Class is such a big part of everything in America. And we don't think that way. I don't think people look at the suburbs and think that way. They think the suburbs are one thing and they're not. They're a hundred thousand, a million different things. And I just wanted to start scratching the surface and being like, hey, over half of America lives in the suburbs. We should kind of maybe start figuring out what makes them great, what makes them bad, what this, what that. And it just kind of became an obsession of mine. Was it hard to go back and visit suburbs, you know, now that you'd made this leap to the city to do your research? Because your book so poignantly takes us back and I found myself relating to kind of being someone who grew up in the suburbs, desperate to get to the city where the big ideas are and where it's all happening. Was it hard to go back and visit suburbs? And what did it feel like to go back and go to different kinds of suburbs and what kind of feelings came up? You know, I definitely found as many reasons as I could to travel to other cities and any city I went to, I would rent a car and go out to the suburbs. Like there were always places I wanted to visit. Some of them, I'll be honest, depressed me because, but in, in the same way that I'll see a building in a city that depresses me where it's like, it's just cold and sterile. And, and I don't think there's much thought of humanity that goes into building these places. That, that, that really saddens me a lot. But then, you know, I went to where I grew up, which... I think writing a memoir helps you kind of make your peace with a place. And I just saw nothing but beauty. I was like, oh, this is gorgeous. I was very lucky. I grew up on the North Shore. I, I always tell people I grew up up and down the lake in, in the Chicagoland area. And it's, it's, it's a lovely, lovely place. I mean, it's just all up and down Lake Michigan. And just going and looking at the architecture and the way things were laid out and I was like, this is lovely. I took this for granted as a kid. Like, I didn't really ever think about how gorgeous this place was. And I'd walk down to Brooklyn Heights, right down the street from my house, which is the first American suburb. It's not really a suburb anymore. But thinking about it in the context of this was a suburb kind of made me look at it in a different way in its proximity to the city and other parts of Brooklyn and I got to look at things from a different point of view. Um, I th think about there's this like part where I'm writing about Anthony Bourdain growing up in the suburb he grew up in, 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 in New Jersey. You could see Manhattan from his house. And 
people love to talk about that. Like, oh, the city is right in my backyard and blah, blah, blah. Well, the suburbs are kind of in the city's backyard. And I think it's nice to kind of look at it from both angles. To your point about going back to visit suburbs, like Anthony Bourdain was so great about going, there's interesting food, there are interesting people everywhere. And he made a real effort to search that out. Yeah, I mean, if you go to places like Houston is, when you say Houston, people think of the city. But Houston is a massive place and has multiple suburbs around it. I mean, just the different ethnicities and the different kinds of foods you can get going there. Or since I was two years old, my stepmother, basically my other mother, she's Peruvian. And all the Peruvian restaurants were in the suburbs when I was a kid. Like there was a small Peruvian community. And I don't remember Peruvian restaurants in in the city at all. It's changing. I mean, the demographics are there. It's like we see immigrant communities moving out to the suburbs more and they're taking their culture with them. And I think that's great. And that's important because the suburbs were predominantly white for a long time. But now you can go to suburbs and you get Chinese food, like real Chinese food, real Mexican food, real Indian food, all these different cultures are, are, are going out into the suburbs. And I think the more diverse the suburbs get, the better it is for America. Well, also the American dream from an immigrant's point of view potentially was to go and raise your family in that that suburb. The American dream was built upon having a lawn and all those things. Something I loved just at the beginning of your book that kind of overshadowed everything was this idea that post-World War II is really when the suburb took off a real excitement and an obsession with the future and what it might hold, you know, plastics and washing machines and all this. I'd love to know how you feel the type of mode we are in as a country or as a world at the moment, because I definitely don't think we have a positivity about the future. I think there's an opposite feeling. I wanted to relate this to a piece you wrote about the sad Russian boy, I think it was in November 2021. And so look, the world had still been through this insane pandemic, but we there wasn't a threat of war with Russia. And now we're, we're there. Can you explain exactly what a sad Russian boy season is? I'm, a, I'm the first generation born in my family in America. You know, I come from, you know, Holocaust survivors and uh, family who can't remember if they were born in Russia or Poland or Poland and Russia. I've always been drawn to Russian literature. I mean, I am Russian. My f- grandparents, Russian Jews. But I've always been fascinated with the just oh man it's so like russians just are like oh nuclear war is coming oh nuclear war okay this is not good but who cares it's not here yet let's drink there's a sadness to it because you're always waiting for the cold or you're always waiting for the 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 famine or you're always waiting for another army to invade or but what are you gonna do you're you have you're going to sit around and wait for the tra- the tragedy is going to come like every character in 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 every russian novel dies at some point whether we know it or not whether it's on the page or not death is always imminent i i just think there's something sort of like comforting about that it's not nihilism but there is something about russians and the way they just handle humanity being a um i don't know a mess 
but they just do it in their own way that I've always kind of found appealing. Well, particularly in all the Chekhov plays, even when disaster's looming, they're always in their house cardigan, essentially, with family and friends having a chat and maybe having a drink, which leads me, wait, I have two questions now. One, we need to know one or two pieces of Russian literature you go to in comfort or a book that you can't believe other people haven't read. And then I want to know, well, I'm making an assumption that I think that maybe your obsession with creating the best martini has something to do with if the world is the way the world is, I must be able to perfect a drink or two to kind of lead me on the way or accompany me on the way. Yeah, actually, it's funny. Both of those questions have literary, obviously the first one does, but the other one has a literary twist also. But Russian stuff, I always go back to, I love Tolstoy. I think he was a fascinating person. He's one of those humans that I'm like, Tolstoy may have had some good ideas there. Like he was kind of nuts and he was willing to just throw it all away and be like, I'm a Christian anarchist now. But I love Isaac Babel is, I mean, there's this one story that I always go back to. You must know everything, I believe. It's basically about him, his grandmother telling him, you get respect through knowledge. And so you just need to know everything. And it's a very sad, but also very beautiful story that I think about all the time. A newer Russian book that I love is Alina Bronsky's The Hottest Dishes of the Tartar Cuisine, a perfect novel, just like the most unappealing narrator, so funny, just kind of gets it to a T. Oy, there's so many. There's so much. And uh, Vladimir Sorokin, he did a book a few years ago that I thought I actually really want to revisit called, I think it's called The Blizzard. And I think it's like one of those books sort of like the way I would explain it is it's sort of like how Colson Whitehead wrote a book about zombies, but it wasn't a book about zombies. He wrote a book that I think is about zombies, but it's sort of got this checkoff sort of vibe to it. Yeah, pretty much anything Russian. If you give it to me, I'll read it. There are some great tips. The one I love is Heart of a Dog. You read that the Bulgakov? Oh, yeah. Am I? I'm. Yeah, yeah. We need a class in Russian pronunciation, but that just felt so daring to write from the point of view of a dog and just be completely masterful. Yeah, I think with my problem with pronouncing their names is I try to overpronounce them. The Martini question to get to the so I don't yes. totally ramble. I wish on we could have Russians. one now, but it doesn't two thirty in the afternoon. If we were Russian, we'd be having one. Yeah, we'd have we'd be on our third by now. And we'd also be no, we'd be on our second and we'd be in the Shvet in the Banya sweating it out. But no, the martini thing was really funny because well first I have this little drinking crew with Isaac Fitzgerald and Alexander Chi and Dan Saltstein, who's at the New York Times. And we have this thing called the Beardo Crew. And every couple of months, we just get together and drink. Dan is the adventurous one with cocktails. He loves all kinds of stuff. And he is anti-vodka martinis, which I understand. They're not I for everybody. I do too. I got told I was very basic when I wanted a vodka martini. And I also thought that's very rude. And also, why is that a bad thing? I love I love vodka. Yeah, me me too. But 
I, I have now been um, schooled in, you know, the perfect gin martini. So I am yet to have a Gibson, I think, the way that you talk about it. So I will try. Oh, next. the Kingsley Amos Gibson. Mm-hmm. The Kingsley Amos. That's an interesting one. I love a Gibson. I like a very filthy tasting drink. It's very um, unappealing to some people. But we have this drinking crew and our first meetup in like a year we thought it was kind of safe to go back out. We went to Maison Premier in Williamsburg, and they do a tableside martini. And prior to that, I had been making martinis at home for my wife and I. I got like these these Nick and Nora glasses. I got just a whole setup, and I thought I was making the perfect martini. When the pandemic started, I was obsessed with like movies like Clue and Renoir's the, the Rules of the Game and Gossard Park and movies where like rich, fancy people were trapped in a, ho- a house together and usually there's a murder. And I always saw them drinking martinis and I'm like, I want to I want to do that. I want to make a martini. And I've, I've had a thousand martinis in my life and I've made hundreds, but I was like, I don't really think too much about it. And I thought I had gotten to a good point about a year into it. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm really good at this. And then we went to Maison Premier and they do this thing where the manager of the bar comes over to the table he has a guy holding a tray and on the tray is like the 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 gin and he goes through what kind of gin it is and then the vermouth and then these olives we cured in house and we stir it this many times and they make it all in front of you and we've frozen the glasses for x amount of hours and i was like wow, I am really failing at my perfect martini. I am nowhere near this. And so I've tried to get to that level. That's where I'm trying to get to. Well, they also, that's a performance too. I think when you go out for for drinks like that, part of what we love is the performance, the bartender shaking that and the ice. And it's a, a whole process, which is fun and lovely to watch. But do you guys ever go to someone's home? Or is it always out? We, I mean, actually, there was a joke. My fellow, your, your, one of your fellow podcasters, Maris Kreitzman, was the last person I saw before we had to go into lockdown, her and her husband, Josh Gondelman. And we went to her house and she was making martinis. And I'm like, these are Maris teenies. So that became sort of a joke for the first six months of the pandemic. I'm like, are you drinking a Maris teeny right now? The The gauntlet is thrown. I'd like more of my friends to make martinis. Do you drink when you write? No. Mm -mm. No. I mean, I have. That's been a generational thing that's changed, isn't it? I mean, think of all those, the the canon of great white men who wrote, you know, so many of the books that we know about. And, and, And look, many of them are great books, but thankfully now we have other voices kind of helping us shape our culture and these kind of ideas about what a writer can be and what they do. But it feels now like all types of writers are very straight laced. <laughs> I'm very like, I have this purity thing. Like if I even have a Bloody Mary on a Saturday, I'm like, I can't exercise now. Like I have alcohol in my system and writing for me is a very, I mean, it's not nine to five, but I do take it very seriously. Like I wake up and I have a a very clear process as to how I want my morning to go. And I do everything 
very like I have the things I have to do every day. Coffee is the only thing I'll put in my system before I write. Much as I always say I'm sick of like Ernest Hemingway, you know, I'm fascinated by the guy. And I love his sh- I do love his short stories. You know, I watched the Ken Burns documentary and it's so depressing. Like I was like, oh my God, you just killed your I mean like he literally killed himself. I watched it too and I felt the same. Oh my God. Yeah. But also he was so nasty to the people around him and to the I mean, I was really struck by how he treated the women around him that kind of just like really hit a nerve but that's not really part of the the kind of macho writing the writer thing anymore you know i come from i have addicts in my family and it's just not somewhere i I like to drink i like to have a cocktail but i just that's it and that's why i'm so i think adamant about the perfect martini because i'm only gonna have one so it had better be good Well, I think just relating this back to the suburbs, I've always felt that if I moved to the suburbs, I would start to drink more to have that cocktail before six o'clock and that might come a little earlier. And I actually, I had a period where I lived in the Bahamas for, yeah, three months after meeting someone and thinking I'll just move there but the problem was I couldn't really work there legally I was in a writing program so I was trying to write but it was crazy I wanted to drink really early in the day and I could feel what that might do to someone I was only 28 or something I thought this is something's awry obviously but it also I I couldn't really write so I thought I'd have a drink to see if it would help and it obviously didn't you know maybe it's reading too many stories about couples that go to the suburbs and then everything breaks down that has inspired that so I'm a little hesitant to move there myself I think I need the city to keep me keep me strong I went and reread my memoir like which is a weird thing to do I read it like last year before the first before the new book came out you know obviously I was talking about the suburbs so much and I, I'm fascinated with loneliness. I think because I was very lonely as a kid. I mean, it's it's a product of being a child of of divorce and you know, moving around a lot and living in the suburbs. Also, definitely did not help that. But you know, I'm fascinated with loneliness, especially. I mean, I'm a very extroverted person. One of the things that really clicked with me as I was writing it was I just devoured John Cheever, and I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, we, we pigeonhole writers like, oh, he's this kind of certain kind of mid-century sad white guy. But I was like, man, Cheever really actually did a really good job of kind of summing up a very particularly American condition of sort of self-imposed loneliness, whether we know it or not, and the things that we'll do to sort of mask that self-imposed loneliness and the swimmer obviously is like the, the the one that everybody talks about. But I mean, like, there's all these stories of just like, this is the 1950s, people just sort of living mindlessly and, and, and not really thinking about what's going on in their world or, you know, living in the moment. And they mask everything with, with, with alcohol or they cheat on their spouses or they, that's why we kind of think about the suburbs and we think, oh, Mad Men or the ice storm or... Yates 
any of these sad, you know, Shirley Jackson was, was, was great at this. Probably I think the best to writing about like the weirdness of the suburbs without actually always writing about it. Olivia Lang really hit it with her book about the city, about like certain artists living in the city and their relationship with loneliness. And that was something I really thought a lot about when I was writing, when I was, when I was researching, when I, I think about it all the time, but I think Cheever really touched on something that I think we don't really talk about enough. And that's just how lonely we are and how lonely we've been as a country. Like we've just, we keep doing things. And I mean, now it's a little different. We can't really help it that we're stuck inside. It's really, it's really fascinating to me. I mean, we're just a very lonely place. That's that that's sad to me. That 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 saddens me. And the suburbs make it easier to be lonely. I had a, a bit of a lonely childhood too, and I think it's normal that we then think that we'll go to these places that are bustling with all these kind of great people and we find our tribe or and I think to a sense of it that's that's really true. But what do you do now when you're struck with loneliness? I, I've been talking about this a lot with my wife because obviously, especially the last two years, we see each other all day and all night. I I, lo I actually love that. I know that some people might, I, I, I kind of have to say that, otherwise I'd probably get in trouble, <laughs> but it's true. I do really love having my wife by me all the time. I'm That's just how I am. So in, in, in one sense, I've been really happy that the person I love the most is right down the hall from me at all times. But at some point I told her, I'm like, it's really weird. I've never had a time in my life where I haven't had people. Like I've always been around people as an adult. I, I, I got out of the suburbs and I've just surrounded myself with people. I love my friends. I love meeting people. I love talking to people. I love observing people. And I, I got to the point where I was like, even though you're here, this has actually been the loneliest time of my life as an adult, again, because that ability has been sort of, you know, I can still see people when I walk outside. It's it's New York. It's, it's not like I live in like the middle of nowhere, but I've had to really figure out ways to get creative with making sure that I'm always sort of interacting with people somehow or another. And to me, Zoom and and text messaging they don't they don't do it for me. So I think there's a little bit of an old old man in me where I just like to go sit on a bench and just watch people. I'm very into quiet moments. I'm very fascinated with just sitting there and breathing and seeing where things go. And when I'm sitting on a bench, I'll watch people walk by and sometimes I'll do it for 10 minutes. Sometimes I'll sit there for like 2 hours. I won't even realize the time has gone by. And I'll feel better. And I mean, you know, also going to bookstores, you know, I go to bookstores or I go to the coffee shop and I've got my mask on and I'll just, I'll start talking to anybody. I'll, I will always engage people, whether it's the cashier at the, at the bookstore who, you know, is going to want to talk about books. That's why they work at the bookstore. Or if I see a barista wearing a cool hat, I'll say something, you know, I always try to be respectful. I never want to like creep anybody out, but <laughs> I always want to try to engage people, you know, because I think it's reciprocal. I think people, they know they have to be around people. No, I was just going to say, I think I'm similarly inclined. Even when the pandemic was at its worst, I still walked to the coffee shop 
you know, around the corner and, you know, was stood in the line six feet apart with everyone to go in to have some interaction. I think what you're talking about by having kind of a partner and someone you love around that isn't that wonderful that we've had that during this period. But I think it's kind of the zhuzh of life is often it's the spontaneity you get with strangers in a street or just yeah, being out in the world. I thought recently my parents are coming to visit in June and I, in Australia or in Sydney, cafe culture is so huge. You know, everyone gets their coffee and sits out and kind of just watches and hangs out for a little bit. And I was trying to think of the where they're going to stay, where they would go do that and to watch people. And I couldn't really think of a place. And it was, it was making me sad. I was like, there are never enough seats for everyone to sit down in New York. I mean, we have more outdoor seating now more than ever. But I was just noticing there's also a place at home in Sydney, this one cafe where about eight old men sit there every morning to kind of grumble and have their coffee and read the paper. But they're kind of a lively group. And I keep thinking that is life, like that is the way to do it. I, If I could meet my pals for half an hour every morning or an hour every morning, I'd get up to do that, to just have that routine and check in. It'd be great. Hopefully it can happen soon. I mean, when I was a kid, my grandfather, my, my father's father, who was born in Romania, survived the Holocaust, came over here, made a new life for himself was successful, yada, yada, yada. You know, he lived in the suburbs after a while. He moved to the suburbs, to another suburb in another state. He moved to Boca Raton, Florida. But he always had these places. He could just find them. Or I don't know if there was like a network or for the old, the old Jewish men, the old, old Holocaust survivors, the old country guys. It was lovely. He would take me all the time. And they were like, oh, Jason, hi. And they'd be talking about all kinds of stuff. And... And they would do this every morning. And I was like, this is what adulthood is like, right? Like, I mean, I know these guys are like 60 or 70, but like, this is what I want. I, I want to go hang out with with Shlomo and, and David and, and Mordecai and all these old Jewish guys complain about how cold the tomato soup is, even though it's my fault for letting it sit there for 10 minutes. I want to, I want to kibitz. I want to talk. I love sitting at a table with people. It's, it's my... My greatest joy. I mean, my wife and I, 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 I actually tear up when I, when I, sometimes when I talk about just how much joy I have going to dinner with my wife, and then you times that by two, four, six, eight people at a table. Whether it's like a nice big meal or it's just getting breakfast, it's just to me, it's like the greatest joy is other people. I just want the buffet of people, and I want to talk and drink and enjoy them and it's only been obviously the last few years have only made that more you know it's it's only made that even more intense like we need people we need each other um we don't we don't need fences we don't need all this like land in the front of our house that keeps people off we need to go out and talk to our neighbors we need to know what's going on we need we need to we need to be in contact it's so important and, and community is is a beautiful thing i love i love my neighborhood that i live in i don't want anybody to be like me but i would love it if more people sort of felt that way about the places they lived suburb city whatever
And I think at this point in time, it's about supporting those small businesses, isn't it? Like that coffee shop, the local cafe, the local food places, and realizing that that's what makes a community tick. And I feel like listeners might want to start like a Jason Diamond, like macchiato club in the morning or something to get like a crew together just to hang and wouldn't it be great if we all processed our news together every morning instead of on twitter that would be a fun experiment going back to the suburbs i write about the mall victor gruen was a was a socialist the guy who invented the mall in america wanted an old Vienna Square, where the whole neighborhood could go and talk. The mall was supposed to be that. And the more I thought about it, the sadder I got, because I mean, I love the mall. I grew up going to malls. They were they were my town center as a kid. Especially with winter in the freezing places. Oh. In winter, for kids, where else do you go except be dropped off there to amuse yourself? You just spend hours walking around the mall. If there was a mall down the street from me, I would hang out there probably more often with my friends and be like, hey, let's go get coffee at the weird little sub Starbucks that they have at the mall because it's indoors if, if it were safe. But we I don't know. It's strange. We don't take advantage of these things. And we've just there's been a real decline in general in America of participation in groups. I mean, in church groups and social clubs and the PTA. So that... <laughs> It's just, it's so strange to me, like how alone we want to be. Like getting people to go get a macchiato together every morning is one thing, but we can't even get people to join civic groups anymore. It's very sad. Oh, Jason, we can't end on that. I could talk to you forever about no, like a I'm litany of so many topics. No, no, I wasn't like, oh, we can't end on that. But I do. No, I think I'm you... so hopeful though. I am hopeful. I am, I am too. Hopeful. I feel that. I feel that about you and your presence is hopeful. But I ask everyone, and you might already have answered this, but what lights you up? Ooh, honestly, this, the, the, I'm just going to... Dogs. I love dogs. Yes. If I see a dog, I will... My wife is like, you're so embarrassing. Like, I have treats on... I'm, I'm a creep. I am a, a literal creep when it comes to dogs. Like, I've always got dog treats. Every friend who gets a dog... I'm automatically, I'm Uncle Jason. You know, it's like I'm obsessed with dogs. Every dog in this neighborhood, they have to know me and my dog, Max. Max is a, is a jerk. He's a little, he's a little prince, but I, I just love dogs. What type of dog is he? He is a, I'm always embarrassed when I say this, but his technical term is a pugapoo. He is <laughs> a pug and poodle mix. And we did the DNA test and he's got some terrier in him. So he kind of looks like he kind of looks like Toto a little bit, but Toto with like a, a pug body. That sounds cute. I would just love dogs that you can squeeze. I need there to be a little heft. Like I need them to have meat on their bones so I can really give them a squeeze. Yeah, he's he's a meaty little guy. It's kind of. But he's he's so funny. He's just all attitude. He's 12. So I want to throw a, a bark mitzvah this this year when he turns 13 just need to find a rabbi who will do it but i love dogs i will always greet them if 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 i sense that they want to be greeted i love that answer well i know that 
anyone who's listened will just want to know where they can read your writing and you have can you tell us where we can find you because you not only write books but you write so many places and we can get a taste of what you're thinking and feeling far more often yeah i have my own newsletter which is too long of a url it's called the melt but it's like I think the URL is like melted cheese on whitefish at substack.com. If you could find it, I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I write, I write for GQ all the time. I'm a contributor there. So basically every week at GQ, you could find me. Yeah. Hopefully I'll have book announcements soon. Ooh, can you talk about it or is that not, not quite right? Well, I have a novel and I have a book proposal. So I have two things. The book proposal is it's, it's a little different compared to the last two books but it's in the cultural realm i want to look at, at at how far we're willing to be pushed in terms of comedy and what comedy means in 2022 and sort of looking at it from the perspective of like the last 20 or so years of, of so-called cringe comedy so i've been very fascinated with that like curb your enthusiasm and the office and shows like that but also just other stuff in that realm it's just a topic i've always been fascinated with and hopefully that's going to turn into a, a bigger project soon that sounds amazing well thank you so much for chatting jason i feel oh, like course. we just didn't cover half the things i had wanted to but that's the pleasure that's the when you're actually just listening so it's so nice Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. <laughs> Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. See you in two weeks. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.